Hope you're doing well. Oh, yes. I remember to turn the mic on. Awesome. Um, <clears throat> so first service, I came out and the mic wasn't on for like the first five minutes. I'm like, I don't think it's on. And I checked and it wasn't. All right. So uh, good news. We are in a new book. We are in a new book. We finished the book of Acts last week. Uh, 62 sermons, and now we're moving on to the book of Judges. We're going to try to double the amount of sermons for Judges than we did for Acts. I'm just kidding, we're not. Um, before I get started, though, uh, just a reminder for all of you, if you're a member, you should have picked up one of these slips on the information table. There's actually some on the, on the sound booth back there for you, if you're a member, to vote on the deacon slate. So we're going to do our <clears throat> offering in a different place today, right after the Lord's Supper at the first song instead of the third song. We're going to take up the offering. So while I'm preaching, you know, at some point, get distracted, fill this out, and then come back. Um, anyway, we are uh, in the book of Judges today. So we're starting a new book, and uh, we're going to do ch- Judges chapter 1. Um, but what I'm going to do today is uh, when we read, I'm not going to read the entire chapter. Uh, we're going to read verses 1 down to 15. We'll cover the entire chapter, but just for time's sake, because I'm preaching 36 verses, I'm just going to read uh, the first half-ish or so. So if you're able, let's uh, stand together. If you're not, that's fine. You can stay seated. We stand in honor of God's word, <clears throat> and I'm going to read the first half. And then after I read, I'll say, thanks be to God. And you'll respond by saying, I'll, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. And as you do that, of course, you're thanking the Lord, but you're also um, indicating that you want to say yes to the things that the Lord teaches you. You want to say yes to the places that he wants you to be obedient. So starting at verse 1 of Judges 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given them... Sorry, given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon with him and Judah went up with the, and Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and they fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Verse 8. Then the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country in the Negev and in the lowlands. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba. And they defeated Shishai and Ahaman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. And the name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othanel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksah, his daughter, for a wife. <clears throat> and she came to him. She urged him to ask her father for a field. He, and she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land in the Jeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your word, your mercy, your love that you've given to us. I pray that as we look at your text, something that's happened 3,500 years ago, 3,400 years ago, that we would, uh, as we see and read it and understand it, 
that we would understand since this is your word to your people, no matter what year it is, no matter who it is, uh, that it applies to them. And that we would, um, because of we uh, seeing this text, we would want to follow you more closely, but more than anything, God, that we would treasure Jesus in our hearts and minds more closely. Help us see and understand that Jesus is the hero of every text, and including this one, and that our hearts would be set aflame for Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, happy Father's Day to you. Um, hope that uh, if you're a father, you're having a good day. Uh, and if you have a father, you should call him. And if you can't, you should just thank the Lord that you had him when you had him. Um, but happy Father's Day to you all. Now, as we jump into Judges, uh, since it's a brand new book and we're starting in chapter one, I thought it might be helpful <clears throat> to give us a little bit of understanding of where we are in Old Testament history. Some of you, New Testament's maybe a little bit easier to understand because it wasn't just 2,000 years ago and we study it a whole lot maybe more or at least read it a whole lot more. Uh, and you don't maybe know the history of Old Testament and it can be somewhat difficult. So I, uh, I found an Old Testament timeline for us and it's a little crammed and a little bit difficult. I'm going to try to find something maybe a little bit easier. But nevertheless, I thought I would put it up here for us to get a, a good idea of what's going on and where we are as we look. So over here is Genesis 1-1. This is all cre- creation. And over here is the end of the Old Testament. So as you go through the, the Old Testament history, we're, we're starting here at creation and you got the, the patriarchs and then you have the Exodus when they get out and they, they roam in the wilderness a little bit and they have conquest. And then we're starting right here at 1399. You can see the period of the judges from 1399 to 1350. So that's, that's where we are in the Old Testament. It's um, right after Joshua has died, right before Samuel comes up as a prophet and anoints a king. So we're right there in the middle of this particular period where the judges come into um, to leadership, to lead both the civil and the military functions of Israel. Uh, and the 12 judges that are here, uh, one, one uh, ESV commentary says the two most best known of the 12 are Gideon and Samson, and they're hardly paragons of virtue. Uh, so the, the book of Judges is, um, in a lot of ways, a, uh, a sad tale of the people of Israel as we read through it. So that's where we are in 1399 down to 1350. Um, it's written by likely Samuel. That's Jewish tradition. It's really anonymous and we don't know, but it was probably written by Samuel. So as the history unfolded in 1399 through 1350, Samuel lived a couple hundred years later and he wrote it about it as it, as it happened. <clears throat> the theme of the book of Judges is this. And this is, if you have the ESV study Bible, it's in your Bible if you have that. It says the theme is this. Um, it's the downward spiral of Israel's uh, national and spiritual life into complete chaos and apostasy. That's kind of walking away from God and showing the the need that the people of Israel have for a godly king to finally come and lead them. That's that's the theme of the book of of Judges. And as we read through the book of Judges, it, it starts out okay, but it progressively gets worse and worse and worse and worse. It's, it's kind of, uh, one, one commentator I was saying was saying that if you're going to study, we'll see this in a second, but if you study in the book of Judges, it's a good book to study in regard to understanding discipleship, um, especially in the New Testament, it's the book of Acts. I'm like, well, that's perfect. We just finished. The book of Acts gets progressively better in their, in their followings of discipleship, and the book of Judges gets worse and worse. But you can see the positive aspects of discipleship and you can see the negative aspects of the book of Judges. And you're like, well, then why are we studying that, Fudd? I don't understand why you would want to do this um, to us. Well, I'll explain to you. So um, the book of Judges 
even though it does that, it still points us to uh, Jesus. And it points us to our absolute need for the gospel. So as we see the book of Judges theme is this kind of downward spiral. Uh, there's a little bit of background that we should know. So they, they've left Egypt. They've come into this, this, this land that's theirs. And they need, to, they need to take over this land. People are in this land that aren't Israel. It's Israel's land. But there's people in this land that they need to get rid of. The Canaanites and a whole lot of other ites. Um, are in there. And so God's told them that whenever you go into this particular land, uh, there's people there. Now, these people that are there are not innocent bystanders and lovely, lovely folks. They're wicked, wicked, evil people that deserve, um, where we all do, uh, the righteous wrath and righteous anger of, of the Lord. The people of Israel be the instruments of God's wrath to bring it to them or to bring judgment upon them for their, for their rampant wickedness. And so God has told them, when you go into this land, the Canaanites and all the other ites that are there, you need to get rid of them completely. They, they need to be driven out completely from this land. Don't let any of them remain in the land whatsoever. If you do, it's going to be bad for you. Now, in Joshua uh, chapter 23, it tells us this. When he says, you're going to get this land. This land is yours. If you just look one page to the left, by the way, uh, we're in Judges. One page to the left, you're in Joshua. At the very end of Joshua, <clears throat> at chapter 23, this is what it tells us about this land that they're going into. In verse, starting at verse 5, the Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight. So the book of Judges, the, the, one of the big commands of the people of God is there's people that, don't, that should not be in this land. Israel, get them out, drive them out completely. And the book of Judges is is supposed to be of them obeying God, driving people out of their land, and then taking possession of what is their land that God gave them. And it says, in verse five, the Lord your God will push them back before your sight and drive them out of your sight. And you shall possess this land just as the Lord God promised you. Therefore, be strong. Be very strong to do all that's written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it, either to the right or to the left, that you don't mix with these nations. So when you go in there, don't let them become part of you and you don't become part of them. You don't mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods. You don't become idolaters like them or, or uh, take their gods and kind of put it together in some kind of syncretic syn- syn- uh, syncretism and some kind of relationship where your God and their gods are now all that you worship or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. Only God shall be your God. For the Lord has driven out before you a great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. So he's reminding them of these things before they go in. Nobody can take you, no matter how strong you think they are. Um, and as for you, no man has been able to... Verse 10. <clears throat> One man of you puts... To fight a thousand since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised you. That's pretty awesome. One man puts a thousand to flight because it's the Lord God who fights for you. Verse 11. Be very careful therefore to love love the Lord your God. That's pretty amazing how he equates uh, clinging to the Lord, trusting the Lord, and, and the Lord fighting you to you're reciprocating with love for God that you would do it. Verse 12, for you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations. If you let all the ites stay in with you and you're pushing them out, remaining among you and making marriages with them, you associate with them and they with you. Know for certain, here's what will happen. Know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord God has given you. So we know We know the story. We know what's going to happen because they're not going to love the Lord their God. They're not going, but everything was told to them. Follow God, cling to God. And as we see the book of Judges, it unfolds, helping us see that the people of Israel have been told that they've been promised this land. 
And whenever they fight, they don't fight in a normal fashion. So in a normal fashion, when you go fight and you see an army that's stronger than you, you say, okay, they're stronger than us. We're not going to fight them. We'll just not fight them. So we'll <laughs> forget that. We can fight these people we can beat. And we have these armies over here. They're so weak. There's no even use in fighting them. The better thing is just to go in there, knock them around and make them our slaves or whatever. And he's saying, you don't fight in that fashion whenever you fight for, it, for Israel and you fight for God. If people are stronger than us, we know that one man can send a thousand of them packing and running. And so since we have God on our side, even though they seem stronger to us, we go fight them anyway because the Lord, our God, fights for us and destroys them. It doesn't matter how strong they are, we can beat them. And for the weak, we don't say, ah, just make them our slaves, don't worry. We, we drive them out as well. Everybody is supposed to get driven out because um, this is what the Lord has told us. And if we don't do what God says, if we don't do it exactly the way that happens, Israel will start adopting pagan religions. They'll start intermarrying with them. And what they're really doing when they don't drive out the, the easiest ones and they don't drive out the weakest ones is they're practicing half-hearted obedience. Half-hearted obedience because they think that they know better than God. They think, well, we can't beat them. God thinks we can, but we can't. They're too easy. We're just going to enslave them. All this is half-hearted obedience. And half-hearted obedience, when it's being displayed, shows that you think you know better than God does. And we don't. And so as we're looking at the first chapter here, we're going to see in this first chapter half-hearted devotion, half-hearted following, half-hearted discipleship compared to wholehearted um, devotion, wholehearted discipleship, wholehearted following of God. Now, as you read through the book of Judges and as we study through it, you'll, you'll see that there's some, uh, there's some pretty horrifying things that happen in the people of Israel. Some of them are funny. The Ehud left-handed man, Judges 3, is hilarious. Uh, the man's on the toilet and he gets stabbed. But like uh, later on, as you get into some of the other stuff, I mean, it's just awful. It's just, you read it and you're thinking, these people are so, so messed up. They have so many problems. One commentator says, these are despicable people doing deplorable things. Or you could say it, trashy tales about dysfunctional characters. And you might say, well, that sounds like a family reunion for me. And we can say, well, then you're going to fit right at home in the book of Judges. It's going to be awesome for you. You're going to love it. Um, but nevertheless, I hope that's not the case. Um, it, it's the heroes of the book, though that they're wouldn't, and I, I air quote them, uh, get worse and worse as the book goes on. Uh, and the reason why the people of God are seemingly so wicked in this book is because the very last verse in the book uh, says this. Uh, And Judges chapter 21, verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the very last verse tells us why everything is so bad. Because (laughs) if you only do what's right in your own eyes, it will not go well. And so um, the narrative of the entire book of Judges is driving to this end. Stories of rebellion, stories get worse and worse as they go. And the final analysis as we get to the book of Judges is that there is no king and everyone does what's right in their own eyes, which will undoubtedly lead us to say, then why is this book in the Bible? Why did God put a progressively worse spiraling down book about his people until everyone just does right in his own eyes? Why would that be in the Bible? And the answer, and you, if you've been here at Remedy at any particular time for any length of time, you should know it's the word we use on everything. The reason why this book is in the Bible is because of the gospel. It's in here for the precise reason for the gospel. The, the writer of Judges sets the stage throughout the entire thing to show how it gets progressively worse and progressively worse and progressively worse so that a godly king will come in and lead the people out of their utter rebellion, out of their utter despair, out of their utter sinfulness. And the book of Judges leads us to see just how terrible it can be 
which is the reason why we need the gospel. We need to see just how terrible we've become and understand our sinfulness so that our glorious king, not David, not Saul, not Solomon, but Jesus will come in and save us from our wretched sinfulness. And so the book of Judges, as it, because after the book of Judges, a king comes in. Saul's not the great one. He's, he's the first one. David is. But this promise is made to David saying, through you, David, the truer and better king will come and lead the people of Israel. So the book of Judges is a picture for us of understanding an aspect of the gospel. And that's why it's in there. That's why it's in the Bible. Now, before we get started, uh, I want to give you kind of a big picture idea of some stuff from the book of, of Judges that we'll be studying through. Uh, Tim Keller has a book and he has five uh, themes that you'll see kind of talked about throughout the book of Judges. And these are really helpful to understand uh, since we know kind of the gist of it, of how it gets worse and worse. He says there's, there's five big themes that are gonna be over and over kind of talked about and explained throughout the book of Judges. One, I love this one. God relentlessly offers his grace to people who do not deserve it. That's me and you. I do not deserve it. And he relentlessly offers his grace to us who do not deserve it. These won't be on the screen. Um, the second one is that God wants lordship over every aspect of your life. Not just some. He doesn't want half-hearted obedience. He wants lordship over every area of your life. The third one is that there's a continual need for spiritual renewal in your lives. There's never a place where you're like, okay, I'm good. The book of Judges is going to help us see that we need, you could say, sanctification. He uses spiritual renewal. Same idea. There's a continual need for spiritual renewal in our lives. As he says, Judges is the best book in the, in the Old Testament to understand renewal, just like Acts is the best book in the New Testament. The key difference is the renewal gets weaker and weaker in the book of Judges, and while in Acts it gets stronger and wider. So we are studying two great books back to back to understand spiritual renewal. Um, the other thing, another theme of the book of Judges that helps us see is that we all need a true savior. Everyone here needs a savior. And lastly, is that God's in charge. No matter what's going on, no matter dreary, wicked, terrible, awful the circumstances are surrounding anything, these people are being all, all our lives, God is still in charge and he's still totally sovereign. Even in the midst of these things, and you're just looking at this and you're like, how does that happen? God's still in charge. Now, uh, as we start chapter one, there's a couple characters here that uh, pop out as should be familiar. Chapter one, verse one. Chapter one, verse 13. Uh, two very big names in Old Testament history. One, one, Joshua. One, I'm sorry, one, 12 and one, 13, Caleb. So these two guys jump out immediately, Joshua and Caleb. Now, these two are the only two people that actually were alive in slavery in Egypt make it through the entire wilderness and go into the promised land. Moses was with them and he went through the wilderness, but he dies on the mountain as he sees the promised land. And you've got all these other people that came out, but they groaned and they whined. All the people of Israel whined and didn't follow God. And he said, every single one of you will die now in the wilderness. And after the last one of you is dead and the new generation, they'll be the ones that get to go into the promised land, not you, except for Joshua and Caleb. So everybody dies in the wilderness from Egypt to the promised land, except for Joshua and Caleb. They're the only two in the Bible that were in Egypt and actually make it into the promised land as well they reach. And so um, 
Joshua, of course, meaning salvation, leading the people uh, into salvation, is leading them into the promised land, just as Jesus does. And Caleb is the warrior that fights as well. So you've got these two familiar names, just as most Old Testament books, big Old Testament books, they start with kind of the previous hero that brought them to this place. And then you go into the next. Well, Judges doesn't present a ton of heroes for us. Um, And so as we're going into verses 1 through five, I want you to see some things because I said this is going to be about half-hearted versus whole-hearted discipleship. Watch this. And maybe you caught it as we read. Maybe you didn't. You've got the death of Joshua and the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, which is good. They go to God and they say, okay, our job's to drive out the Canaanites. There's 12 tribes. Who goes first? And they go up first and they say, uh, inquire of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight them? Verse two, notice the precise language of God. He's not He doesn't mix words. He doesn't make it really difficult. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Okay, Judah's turn. The other 11 need to stay home. Not their job, not their time. Judah, you need to go up. Judah says, okay, I got an idea. What we're gonna do is, since we're gonna go defeat this land, you know what would be awesome is Simeon. We'll get Simeon to join us and we'll go defeat their land and then we'll go with Simeon and we'll defeat them. We'll do a little twofer deal. Did God say do the twofer deal? No, he didn't. He didn't say do the twofer deal because he said, I'm God, you follow me and we'll do it ourselves. You don't need other people. So immediately, I mean, immediately right off the bat, we see disobedience. Half-hearted, they, they, they obey the task, but not the manner in which the Lord tells them to do it. They immediately go, see what it says. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory of light of me and we fight against the Canaanites. And likewise, I will go with you to the territory of light of to you. And so Simeon with him. Now, In spite of, verse 4, nevertheless, in spite of the disobedience, the Lord still blesses. Verse 4, Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and Perizzites in the hand. They feed 10,000. He's still kind to them. (laughs) He's the kind of God that gives grace to people that don't deserve it over and over. But nevertheless, the first thing we see here, I guess half-hearted and full-hearted devotion, you can put up number one, is this. Um, A person with half-hearted devotion to God doesn't obey totally. They seek to obey God on their own terms. They obey the task, but not the way in which God told them to do it. Nevertheless, God still chooses in this moment to be merciful and relentlessly offer grace to people that don't deserve it. But this is not what they were told to do. So in our own lives, the Lord tells us to obey. Do we obey God on our terms? Or do we obey God on his terms? God tells us to obey, and we may get the task done, but we don't like his manner in which we want to have Simeon join us and accomplish the task, and that's not what God said. Whenever we obey God, we don't say, okay, God, I like what you're saying, but I'll do it my way. That's, that's wholehearted devotion. Wholehearted devotion, wholehearted discipleship leads to no-hearted devotion, no-hearted discipleship. That's not a word. I'm going to make it one. So the first thing we see then is this, is... Whenever the Lord tells us to do something, we don't change the terms and decide to do it in the way that we want. Instead, we do it exactly the way he tells us to. Now, um, we're going to skip down a little bit, but you may be asking about Israel deciding to cut off this man's thumbs and big toes. Uh, It says in verse 6, he fled and they found him and they cut off his big toes and his, his big toes and his thumbs. That's because that's what he had done. It it tells us that in verse uh, Seven, as I have done, so God has repaid me. He had done it to 70 different people. 
And so Israel heard about this, and they're like, okay, you, retribution for you, big fella. Um, I, I hope it, you can still walk. But it says, no, he dies. So there you go. That's what's going on there. Now, as you get from 8 to 11, you see the conquests and how they kind of go throughout and, and inherit the land. The, the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem, captured, etc. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to the Canaanites who lived, in the, et cetera. And verse 10, verse 11, and they do this. And then, so they're kind of talking about the tribes in a broad sense through the narrative and how they're, they're going in and conquesting and the Lord has is, is blessing them and using them even though they have had kind of half-hearted on their own terms God still is obedient I mean God still is kind and graceful he's not obedient to them they need to obey him and he's kind and merciful to them but then as we get to verse 12 through 15 the narrative instead of being about the 12 tribes zooms in really narrowly to this little family. And then it's going to zoom back out at uh, verse 16 and start talking about the 12 tribes again. But this, this zooming in, this narrowing in on this one family of all these 12 tribes, the writer is trying to help us see, as I said, remember, Judges gets progressively worse as we go. So we can, we can uh, ascertain that the beginning of the book, at least, might have some good things, <laughs> right? And so this narrowing in on verses 12 through 15 um, is the writer trying to help you see all the families of Israel should be like this. They're not, and they're not going to be, but at least let's have one little example of what it should be like as we continually go through the rest of this particular book. Verse 12 through 15 is the narrowing in. We should note here, uh, it's a pretty interesting story, and it's, it's even apropos for Father's Day. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I would give him Axa, my daughter, for a wife. So Caleb, this is awesome. Caleb says, I've got a daughter named Axa, and she is single, and she's ready to mingle. And I'm just kidding. So she, she, I will give the man that will uh, go conquer and obey my voice. If he obeys my voice, I will give my daughter to him for obeying. And it says, Othanel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. So Caleb's younger brother obeys the voice of Caleb, who is a patriarch in, in the people of Israel. He goes... And he gave Axa his daughter for a wife. So there's some, there's some family stuff, you know, intermarrying. But that's just the way it was then. Verse 14. And when she came to him, she urged. So she came to her husband. And she urged him to ask her father for a field. New husband, go ask Caleb for a field. Um, and he, she dismounted. He does do it, by the way. He gives her that. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, what do you want? So now she's directly talking to her father. And she said, give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Najeb, so if we see that you've set me in the land of the Najeb, we can believe that when her husband asked for the field, Caleb gave her the field. And now she sees that she's in this field in the land of the Najeb, and she also needs water. Uh, if we're gonna, I am willing and absolutely wanting to, to plant myself and my roots in this particular city and this, this place that you've set me in the promised land. But for me to do it and thrive, I need water. So give me a spring of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. He gives her two. She asked for one, she gets two. It's the old uh, two for deal. So what we see here is this. As we're looking at this narrowing in, instead of half-hearted devotion, and what we'll see in number three is half-hearted devotion, this particular family is, is being lifted up to us saying, this is, this is a good picture. There's many other things we could say about wholehearted, but here's a picture of some wholehearted devotion we see. And this is what our lives should look like. So number two, Wholehearted devotion to God is obedient. We could actually put respectful, I, did, I should have put it in there, and bold. Wholehearted devotion is obedient, respectful, 
and bold. How do I say all these things? Um, first, Caleb puts out this <clears throat> as, a, as a leader in Israel, puts out the request. I need for someone to go take this land and someone go and obeys the voice of Caleb. I will do that for you. And he goes and he fights. He obeys the voice of Caleb. And we also see uh, respectful. Let's, let's watch. Let's look at these amazing things. And Othanel, the, uh, Caleb's brother, captured it. And so he... Caleb uh, wants to bless him for doing that. And he gives Axa his daughter for a wife. And she came to him. She urged uh, her husband to ask her father for a field. So she's like, okay, we're going to be married. We're going to settle in here. We are going to be absolutely obedient to staying here. So new husband, go ask him for a field. I want you to do that for me. We're, we're going to enjoy the land that, the God, that, that uh, Caleb has given to us. And so let's Let's be obedient. And so he goes and asks. And then it says, and she's going to come to him. And she dismounted from her donkey. So when uh, she asked her husband to get her a field, then she dismounts. Now, I know that whenever you want to show signs of respect to your father, you dismount your donkey so he knows you respect him. And that's where we see this respect. So in this particular place where she comes up to her father, she gets off the donkey and comes to him to talk to him. She's, so, she's showing respect to her father. Um, and so she shows great respect. So wholehearted devotion is, oh, listen, he is on it. So obedient and respectful to them. And also we see when she comes to him, she dismounts from the donkey and she says, what do you want? And she says, give me a blessing. Notice the language here. It's not, give me a favor. It's not favor. It's not, do me a solid dad. It's, notice the language. It's, give me a blessing. These are the same kind of words that we use when we talk to God. And she's saying, Father, bless me with something. You've given me a field. Bless me more with something. And, he's, and he says, I want not a favor, not a solid, but a blessing. And she says, since you've put me in the land in the Najeb, showing I want to settle in this land. I want to enjoy all the blessings of being in the promised land. I need water. So give me some upper springs of water. And Caleb, her father who loves her, doesn't say, okay, here. He gives her the upper springs and the lower springs blesses her doubly for what she wants. And so what we see here is a picture of wholehearted devotion to God. Obedient, like her new husband. Respectful, like Axa. And bold. Bold to go to God and say, God, these are the things I need to say, um, yes, I want to I settle in and I want to enjoy all the blessings of the promised land. These are the things I need in order to thrive here. So in the same way spiritually, you boldly go to your God and you say, God, these are the things I need in order to settle into this life you've called me to be your, your son and daughter. These are the things I need for you to bless me with, to thrive me. And like a good father, he wants to give you these things. He wants to, you should be bold like Axel was to Caleb to go to God and say, God, I want to settle in to live in a Christ-like way. Bless me with these things. These are the things I need in order to thrive as your son and daughter. Give them to me. Give them to me. Now, just a, since it's Father's Day, a little Father's Day side note as we look at this relationship between Axa and Caleb. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. Her relationship with her father um, is, is a healthy one. She knows her dad's a good dad. And she can go to him boldly and ask for things. And she knows that her dad, because he loves his daughter, he, he wants her to thrive, he will listen, and he'll say yes. He's that kind of dad. So dad, be that kind of dad to your children. Be the kind of dad that your children already know that they can come to you boldly and ask for things because you love them already. And moreover, be the kind of dad that doesn't just grant the request, 
but maybe even if possible, can double the request, showing how much you love. It reminds me of Matthew 7, 7 through 11, when you say, if you're, a, if you're a good father, what kind of father would give a serpent to his son or daughter if he asked for something, but your love, Lord loves you anymore, he'll give you more than you can ask or imagine, something like that. Um, that's the Chambers version. Um, but you can write that down and look it up, Matthew 7, that's the gist, gist of it. But my point is this, um, the relationship that Axa and Caleb have here is amazing. That his daughter knows that she's loved by her father and wants to, uh, wants to thrive as uh, the daughter she is to Caleb and asks her, God, asks, I'm sorry, asks her father boldly for these things. And in the same way, that's how we should be. We go to our father knowing he's a good God and we ask boldly for the things that we need in order to thrive as a Christ follower. So... Um, when we look at this second section about wholehearted devotion being obedient, respectful, and bold, are you being radically obedient, taking bold steps, calling upon God when he asks you to follow him wholeheartedly, saying, these are the things I want, God. Respecting him, coming to him, and knowing that you need to be respectful, uh, being obedient to the things he calls you to, and then boldly asking the Lord to help you thrive as a Christ follower. If you're not, why? No one loves you more than him. I want to love you that much, but I don't. Your spouse wants to love you that much, but they don't. You don't love you that much. No one loves you more than he does. No one knows you better than he does. So we see here a picture of wholehearted devotion. Now, as we go through 16 through 18, we, see, we, we zoom back out. And as we read 16 through 18, if it ended at 18, we would think, well, that's a great chapter. And so we see conquest after conquest, and we can get down to verse 18. Uh, Judah also captured Gaza with, Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. That we see that if, even if we get into 19, if we get into verse 19a, we're like, okay, that's a good ending. It says, and the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. And if we just stopped there, we're like, whoo, what a great chapter. But then the, the second part of verse 19 can jar us. It can bring some unsettling to us because if you read all of verse 19, you're like, wait a second. I don't, what? I don't understand. Look, verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah. That's good. If the Lord is with Judah, you're supposed to be able to do all these things that he said in Joshua 23 that's supposed to happen. The Lord's with Judah. He took possession of the hill country. But even though the Lord was with Judah, he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain. What? I thought the Lord was with Judah. Why can't they drive out the inhabitants of the plain? Why is this the case? Why is it that Yahweh, the Lord, when it's all, all caps, this is the Yahweh Lord in the Old Testament, why is it that, that Yahweh can't drive out them? Now, it should trouble us a little bit, but the writer is going to key us in because it says, because they had chariots of iron. Because they have chariots of iron. Now, every one of you are like, wait a second, that shouldn't bother them. This is God. And I even know that's not going to bother them because in Joshua 17, God's already said explicitly, even though they have chariots of iron, they're still not going to be able. I know you know that because let's, let's read it together. Joshua chapter 17, where the, where the chariots of iron is brought up. He said, even though they have chariots of iron, you're going to be able to defeat them. Look at this. Joshua 17 verse 16. Joshua 17, 16. We're going to go through the rest of the chapter. The people of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us, yet all the Canaanites who dwell on the plain have chariots of iron, both those in Beth Sheen and its villages and those in the valley of Jezreel. Then Joshua said to the house of Joseph, To Ephraim and to Manasseh, You are numerous people and you have great power. You shall not 
have one allotment only, but the hill country shall be yours. For though it is a forest, you shall clear it and possess it to its farthest borders. And here it is. For you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron and though they're strong. So we already know chariots of iron shouldn't bother you at all. That's no big deal for God. You should drive them out. But the writer here tells us, even though the God's with them, They could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because, there it is, they had chariots of iron. So what does that mean? Why is it that they couldn't drive out them with the chariots of iron, even though we've already been told that chariots of iron is nothing? Here's why. Because it says, because they had chariots of iron. By the way, this is advanced technology back in the 14th century BC. Advanced technology, chariots of iron. And We're wondering, why is it that it can't happen? Here's what's going on. Why they're not able to uh, defeat the advanced technology of the Canaanites, even though it shouldn't matter. He's telling us why is this. Because, let me me first say this. It's not a lack in God. It's not a lack in God. We already know that God can do it. Instead, it's a lack of belief in God's people in God. God's people think, even though they've already been told the chariots of iron, no big deal. They believe the chariots of iron is a big deal and they can't do it. Notice when it says they could not drive out the inhabitants. They believe the advanced technology of these Canaanites was too much for God's power to overcome. And therefore they could not drive out the Canaanites. So in situations, it's not our lack of strength that keeps us from wholeheartedly following God. It's our lack of faith in his strength. And that's what's going on here. They don't have faith in his strength. They don't need strength. They have God. So they could not drive them out. Notice the could not. Every time after this, the rest of the chapter, it's did not. 21, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 33, it's did not. Here, they could not drive them out. But 21, they did not drive them out. 27, they did not drive them out. 28, they did not. 29, they did not. 30, they did not. 31, they did not. 33, they did not. But here, they could not drive them out. And that's because in their mind, they did not believe in the mighty power of God. God can't overcome this advanced technology. It wasn't, as I said, a lack in God. It was a lack of belief in the people of God in God. And they weren't able to do it. So as we see this, that brings us to point number three. We're going to see some examples of this, but, and I know this is wordy. I showed it to my son last, uh, last night, number three. I said, read this for me. He's like, I don't understand it at all. So let me, let me show it to you. Number three, boom. There it is. Half-hearted devotion to God, which is what we're talking about, begets or gives birth to half-hearted faith in God. So if you have half-hearted devotion to God, you immediately are adopting or giving birth to half-hearted faith. God can halfway help me. And when you have half-hearted faith in God, that begets errant compromise, errant or sinful compromise. Whenever I don't believe God can do stuff, whenever I have half-hearted faith in God or devotion to God, I kind of halfway care about it. That means I have half-hearted faith in him. When I have half-hearted faith in him, I'm, I'm gonna compromise in places. I'm immediately gonna start compromising because I don't think God can do it. And what we're gonna see here in the rest of the chapter are three examples of the errant compromise of the people of God. And as we see these three places of errant compromise in the people of God, they have direct, I mean, absolutely direct application to our lives in following God. 
Because you can see, perhaps in one of these three or all of these three, if you make these same compromises in your devotion to God, in your following of God, in your discipleship and following God. You can see these. The first one's in 27, 28. They're told to drive out the people. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shin and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages. They didn't drive them all out. They didn't do it. But verse 28 tells us they eventually get to the place where they're strong enough. Now they can. Look at verse 28. When Israel grew strong, then they could have. But what do they do? Verse 28. They put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out. That's not what they were told to do. They finally got strong enough to do it, but they didn't. So here, Israel could, because they grew strong enough, drive them out, but they didn't. Instead uh, of obeying it just made more, quote, economic sense to just enslave the people. People, It was just easier. It was just less effort. It was just less work. So this, let's just make them our slaves. They weren't told to make them their slaves. They were told to drive them out. Convenience trumped obedience. Convenience trumped obedience. Errant compromise. May our own personal convenience never be more important than obeying God. Ever. How many times are we letting convenience trump our obedience in God? It's not supposed to. That's errant compromise. The second place we see is in 29 through 33. Um, the Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. And if you read 29 all the way through 33, you're going to see stories that's going to say, Ephraim didn't drive out them and then the Canaanites lived among them and the Canaanites lived among them and then they lived among the Canaanites and then they lived among the Canaanites. It's just, they didn't drive them out and basically they live all together. And so here when they don't drive them out, they live among the Canaanites or the Canaanites live among them. Either way, what we see is laziness. Laziness set in and they just became comfortable with long-term disobedience. They became comfortable with long, they were told to kick them out and they didn't And we know what happens from Joshua 23. Whenever they don't, it tells them, for certain, know that the Lord will no longer be with you. You cannot have these people among you. Don't let these nations remain among you. Don't have marriages with them. They will be a snare and a trap for you. Whips on your sides and thorns in your eyes. And you will perish off the good ground if this happens. But they got comfortable not obeying God. And they got comfortable with long-term disobedience. Let's never become comfortable with any kind of long-term disobedience disobedience in our lives. Errant compromise. When we have half-hearted devotion to God, then we have half-hearted faith in God, and it begets errant compromise where convenience will trump obedience and long-term disobedience will just become part of our lives and we're just absolutely, it's, not, we're, it's second nature to us. We're not even thinking about it. That's the second one. We see a third example of it. And I think that this might be, this might be the worst. This might be the worst. Starting in verse 34 down to 36. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country so that they did not allow them to come down to the plain. So they didn't even push these people back. And here it is, the first three words. The Amorites persisted. The Amorites persisted. The reason why I say this might be the worst is this. It's not that they didn't drive out the enemy. Instead, the Amorites, the pagans, actually pressed back the people of God. Look at the language. The Amorites persisted. What's being told to us is that the people that do not know God had a superior power and tenacity over the people that do know God. Pagans had more courage in themselves and their idols than the people of God had 
courage and bravery in their own God. That's the worst. That is the worst. May it never be, may it never be that the world or things around us seem to be more brave and courageous in their own idols and little g gods than we are in our own God. The Amorites persisted, not, not the Israelites. If anybody should persevere, persist, go longer, have more bravery, have more courage. It's the people of God because they know they have God on their side, but they don't. Errant compromise happens here because they don't even have courage. They don't even trust God that he can do it. They let somebody else, pagans, persevere more than them. They persisted. So here we see in the end of this chapter, Israel is not fully trusting God. They're not fully obeying God. And because of this, they're living alongside idolaters, which will have perilous long-term effects. They're comfortable with long-term disobedience. They're absolutely fine with uh, convenience, trumping obedience. And they're going to live among these pagans and exercise uh, their and intermarry with them and they're going to let them be a snare and trap to them. And they even have pagans exercising greater courage and bravery than they do when they have God on their side. Horrific long-term effects. We're only in chapter one. (laughs) It's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. So as we conclude, this book, as we go through it, will show us a a, a spiraling uh, countdown into the chaos where Israel repeatedly slips back into slavery. And we can ask, I was reading this and one commentator said it this way. Whenever he's talking about what should be our response, then it should be wholehearted repentance if these things are happening in our lives. While a pastor in Wales, Martin Lloyd-Jones, was accused of encouraging emotionalism, Lloyd-Jones' retort was that it is very easy to make a Welshman cry, but it needs an earthquake to make him change his mind. The same for the Americans, same for us. We don't want you to just cry and be sad that you need to repent if you have half-hearted devotion. We need for you to change your mind. Our response to Yahweh's accusing words should be more than wet eyes. It is good to be moved to tears, but better to be brought to repentance. God wants to produce good grief in us. Yahweh's demand that he makes to Joel keeps the perfect balance and needs no hermeneutical doctoring for the church. Return to me. With all your heart, this is Joel 2, 12 and 13. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Tear open your heart, not your garments. So if these things are describing you, the only right response, if you have half hearted, is to return to the Lord, not just with wet eyes, but a changed mind and a changed heart to say, I repent of these things. And I want to, as that second one, have a wholehearted, bold, respectful, obedient following of you. This book's going to show us how it spirals. And you can say, how can I do that? Well, that's good. I'm going to conclude with the best news there is. As this book goes into a, a spiraling chaos and slips back and how Israel slips into idolatry. While the judges will kind of somehow slay, save Israel, the judges have massive flaws. They're massive flaws. The judges still, though, even they have these flaws, prefigure Christ in some ways. But more than anything... The judges show that Israel really needs a king to lead them, a godly king to come lead them. They're going to get a king, but they're not going to get a perfect king. The perfect king comes 1,400 years later for them and for us. And the perfect king that comes for these people of God has no flaws. Not like the judges. He has no flaws. He's perfect. He saves Israel 
But he also extends that salvation even to the Gentiles, to probably every single one of us in this room. He's not just an earthly king like David would be, but he's a heavenly king. And he's not just a heavenly king. He's the king of all kings. There's no king better or greater than him. And so now as we, the people of God, when we trust in Christ and we believe that all of his perfection is given to us and all of our sinful flaws are put on him and we become the people of God, we, the people of God, don't ever have to slip back into repeated downward spirals of idolatry like the people of God. But instead, since Christ has already purchased for us victory completely, he gives us his righteousness and for, sanctific- for justification and for sanctification takes God himself, the Holy Spirit, and puts him in us. And so there's literally, for the people of God, we do not have to walk in half-hearted devotion to God, but we have completely the capacity because of the Holy Spirit to live in wholehearted devotion to him. That's the good news. So if you felt beat up the whole time, like I really stink, I am a half-hearted follower. You don't have to be if you're in Christ. You can absolutely, because of the gospel, because Christ died and the Holy Spirit living inside you, be a wholehearted follower of Jesus, a wholehearted follower of God. Our King, Jesus Christ, forgives all of our sinful flaws and has purchased for us complete perfection. One day, only that we would walk in it and one day we'll achieve it in heaven. But you have the power and the capacity right now to never, ever, ever, ever be thought of as a half-hearted follower of Jesus because he's given it to you already. That's the good news. Because without that, we would all feel despair every day. I'm never gonna be a wholehearted follower of Jesus. You're right, we won't. But praise God that he's given us Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you're so good to us. You give us grace that we don't deserve. Enormous grace that we could never even possibly conceive of deserving. You give to us. And so, Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you for this picture of wholehearted devotion in verses 12 through 15. As we see this family lifted high in the the people of Israel, as people that are obedient to you, as people that trust you, as people that come to you and say, these are the things I need to thrive as your Christ follower. And you love us so much that you want to give us those things. You've given us Christ. You've given us the gospel. You've given us the Holy Spirit. And you have supplied all of our needs in Christ Jesus. And you know us individually too. You know our weaknesses. And so you forgive those things. And you walk beside us through our trials and travails as we continually Adopt, as the book of Joel, chapter 2, a spirit of repentance on and on about the uh, things in our life that need to be sanctified. But you don't hate us, and you're not mad at us, and you're not frustrated with us. You're a loving father, like Caleb, who loves us more than we could ever conceive and dispenses grace unfathomable. And we thank you for that. You're so good to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going into the Lord's Supper now. And this time at the table at the Lord's Supper is a time where we remember this amazing news that Christ Jesus has gone to the cross and purchased for us righteousness. This righteousness that we could have never attained. He freely gives to those who believe. And the Lord's Supper is a time where we eat the bread and drink the cup, remembering that his body was broken and his blood was shed. And we have this now in Christ. It's a time of celebration. And so uh, if you're a believer in Christ, this time's for you. You can come forward and you can 
get the bread and cup and come back to your seat. And I'll lead us all corporately to take the Lord's Supper together. If you're not a believer in Jesus, uh, we just ask that you observe and you'll see a tangible example of uh, the gospel, of the good news of what Christ has done. We're not saved by eating this. We're reminded that we already are saved. And so if you're not a believer in Christ, just observe and you'll have a, a picture of the gospel before you. Whenever you're ready, you have a whole song. You can come forward whenever you're ready. Get the bread and cup and come back. Just as a reminder, there's a table in the back and there's wine or juice. Make sure you look at the sign and pick the one you want.